0: Okay, my microphone is on.
2: Okay, so here we go. Howard, you met our question asker this month. Tell us about her.
0: So Julie St. Marie lives way up in Troy, Vermont. It's about as far north in Vermont as you can get.
2: Howard Weiss-Tisman worked on this episode with me.
0: And Julie is a preschool teacher. She teaches uh, three and four-year-olds. So I drove up to Troy on a weekday, and uh, we had a schedule at after school. Since she's a teacher, um, her husband was out walking the dog. Hi, Greg, how are you? Um, I think the dog is known as a barker, so they were trying to keep the dog a little bit away from the microphones. (laughs) And uh, hello, I'm Howard from VPR.
1: Hi, I'm Julie. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come on in.
0: We came in, and I asked her, first of all, to kind of show me what her recycling scene was.
1: Come right this way.
0: And we went out.
1: So it's a pretty simple system.
0: Into her garage and saw how she sorted everything.
1: Cardboard. Shove it in with more cardboard.
0: And then we sat down in her kitchen and had a a nice talk about recycling.
2: Why was Julie curious about recycling in the first place?
0: Well, Julie told me that she's been recycling for a very long time. Pretty much my whole adult life. She teaches it in her classroom. And every couple of years, she takes a field trip to the Coventry landfill, which is where most of Vermont's garbage ends up.
1: The amount of trash, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And I think that more people should go and visit the facility and at least do their part that they can do at home to keep stuff out of that landfill.
0: Sounds like she leads the recycling at her um in her house her her kids and her husband um I think go along with her. She seems uh passionate about it, shall we say?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will dig around in the trash and take out containers that they just throw away because they don't want to have to either wash them out or dump out the little bit of liquid that's left in them. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm probably a little on the fanatical side.
2: Howard, this is probably a good time to point out that Julie is actually the mom of our colleague, Anna St. Marie, who is VPR's Marketing and Engagement Coordinator, We didn't realize this until after we put Julie's question in a public voting round. Um, But it did win. And Anna confirmed to us that her mom takes recycling, quote, way too seriously.
0: (laughs) She does take it very seriously. But she's also kind of concerned because she's been paying attention to a lot of the news reports.
3: This comes after China stopped accepting the bulk of American recycling last year.
0: China stopped taking the recycling from the United States. They called their decision national sword and it freaked people out in the U.S. And that caused um, a backlog. Towns are struggling to deal with piles of plastic paper, scrap metal, and other materials. Some people are saying that some of the recycling has ended up in the ocean and even ending up in landfills. Imagine my shock when I read both in my local paper and The Guardian that half of Philadelphia's recyclables are now being burned in an incinerator. So Julie was wondering um, what's happening here in Vermont.
1: And I just want to believe that what we are trying to at least recycle does have a purpose or a use or a place that it can go.
2: And it sounds like the other part of Julie's curiosity is a relatively new law in Vermont as well that essentially mandates recycling.
0: Right, Vermont passed the strictest recycling law in the country back in 2012. This bill is long overdue. This is a mandate that I can't believe wasn't brought up years ago. All those in favor signify by saying aye. aye. All those opposed, nay. The ayes appear to have it. The ayes do have it. You've ordered third reading. And the law all kind of rolled out board. year by year, so at this point, It's illegal to throw our recycling into the landfill. Now, of course, people break speeding laws all the time. People break cell phone laws all the time. So there's that question of who is complying with the law and um, is it really helping?
1: I'm really curious to know if over the past five years since the law has come about, if they've seen a decrease in the amount of garbage going into the landfill
2: So this is an interesting contrast because on the one hand, Julie is wondering if Vermont's universal recycling law is prompting more people to actually recycle. But on the other, there's this larger question of like, is there even somewhere for all of America's recycling to go?
0: Right. And so this was a really fun story to report. And we found out that it's just gotten very complicated where this stuff does end up.
2: from vermont public radio this is brave little state i'm angela evansy this show is powered by you and your curiosity we collect your questions about vermont our region and its people and then we put those questions up for a public vote my name is julie saint marie and i live in troy vermont julie's question about recycling dominated in its voting round and it also represents a bunch of questions we've gotten on the topic.
1: I am wondering, are people following the recycling laws that have been recently enacted, and where does our recycling end up?
2: You might think that all your pickle jars get turned back into pickle jars. Spoiler alert, they do not.
1: Recycling an
4: item doesn't mean it's going to become the exact same item it started life out as.
2: Vermont's universal recycling law also has rules about compost and yard debris. But we're just going to focus on recycling in this episode. Because, honestly, that is complicated enough. The whole recycling market
4: turned upside down well over a year and a half ago.
2: We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their
5: support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, VEDA has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com.
0: So the first part of Julie's question was, are more people recycling? And the guy who knows most about that in the state is Josh Kelly. He works with the Department of Environmental Conservation.
6: So what he told me is that from what our data has shown, it's it's happening. It's working. Yes, the law is working. Recycling is up and it has been up each and every year since the law went into effect. And the way that the state knows that is that they weigh all of this stuff. They
0: weigh the trucks when they're dropping off the recyclable materials. And the state runs all these
6: numbers. And we take that data from each facility, aggregate it, and then look at how the state's doing.
0: Now, also on top of that, every five years, Vermont does what's called a waste composition study. And really what it is is they pay people to drive around the state and slice open garbage bags. They take random trucks. They take random garbage bags. They set up these big tables under tents and they pull out every single piece of garbage, all of the paper, all of the (laughs) whatever happens to be in the garbage. And that's where they get um, the most accurate reading of how Vermont's doing. Josh told me they did that um, just last year And according to the latest study,
6: we're recycling 72 percent
0: of the materials we could. And Josh says that's pretty good nationwide.
2: So does this mean that there's also less material going to Vermont's landfill?
0: No, that's something that the data is showing as well. Actually, the amount of material going into the landfill last year increased. Hmm. Um, Josh and the department, they don't really know why. They think it could be the good economy. People are consuming more. um, But we did put more in the landfill last year, which is not a great thing. This law was supposed to cut down on that.
2: And so for people who aren't recycling, like, does the state write you a ticket if they find it out? How does that part of it work? How are they trying to enforce the law?
6: Right. Well, I asked Josh about that. He said to my knowledge, there's been no penalties for recycling violation um, by a resident or a business uh, disposing of recyclables. He
0: says that there have been some calls into the Department of Environmental Conservation.
6: There was about 50 of those complaints in the first couple of years after uh, 2015, when haulers were required to offer recycling collection. Virtually all of those were voluntarily resolved.
2: Well, Howard, looking at all these numbers, yes, the state is seeing more material go to landfill, but they are seeing more material go to be recycled as well. So does this mean we have an answer to Julie's question? Like, are more people recycling because of this law?
0: Well, the state doesn't track that, but the numbers are promising. Like we talked about, the overall amount of recycling is up. Now, there's a possibility that the same number of people are recycling more. But Josh Kelly with the state, he says he's sure more people are recycling.
2: All right. Well, let's move on now to the second part of Julie's question about where all this stuff ends up once it is recycled. Um, Before we get into that, though, we need to talk about the economy and money. So you talked to sort of an expert on this, Howard.
0: Right, I went to uh, visit Natalie Starr.
5: My name is Natalie
2: Starr and I work with DSM
5: Environmental.
0: Natalie and her partner, they work in Windsor. They've got this funky little office up on the second floor of a building and they've done work all over the world and all across the country.
5: We're resource economists. We focus on the cost of, of managing waste and recycling and organics.
0: Now, when China was taking paper and plastic from the U.S., a lot of people were making money on this stuff. In Vermont, haulers were even being paid pretty good money for their truckloads, and now they have to pay to get rid of it. Hmm. And that probably means that you are paying more now, too, to have your recycling picked up. Natalie said since China stopped taking stuff from the U.S., people have been scrambling in Vermont and across the country to come up with cost-effective ways of reusing this stuff. And so the second part of the question about where Vermont's recycling ends up, it really comes down to finding the best deals. Because really, when you recycle your kombucha bottle, the cost of that bottle, of the environmental impact, it's not included in the price you paid.
5: Recycling has a cost. And the question becomes, who pays and at what point? Are we paying after the fact when the truck has to come to our curb? And uh, are we going to pay up front when we buy that product?
2: And Natalie someone we're going to hear from later because, Howard, when you and I were reporting this episode, the issue of who pays and how much kept coming up with basically everyone we talked to.
0: Right. Right.
2: Now, to answer part two of Julie's question about where Vermont's recycling ends up, we need to say this is not a one-size-fits-all answer.
0: Right. There, There are a lot of different ways this happens across Vermont. There's single-stream recycling and— You can do that from the curbside or take it somewhere where you drop it off. And there are even some places in Vermont where people are still sorting their stuff.
2: And the first stop for a lot of our recycling are these things called solid waste districts. There are 16 of them in the state. There are even some towns that have approval to do their own special plan. Now, some of these solid waste districts, they kind of do their own thing. They take all your recycling and they from there, sell it into the into the market. This is actually what the solid waste district in Julie's community does, the Northeast Kingdom Waste District.
0: Right, they sort and they sell their stuff directly to markets, um, but most of Vermont's recycling, about 64% ends up at one of two facilities in the state.
2: Yes, these are called materials recovery facilities, MRF. People in the industry call them murphs. They say murph like smurf.
0: Yep, there's a murph in Rutland and there's a murph in Williston.
2: And the Williston Murph is where we went.
0: We went for a little tour.
2: All right, so things are a little
4: cramped and a little out of order here. We're gonna poke our nose in a couple places to show you what's going on.
2: So we got a tour from Michelle Morris. She's the director of outreach and communication for the Chittenden Solid Waste District, which owns this MRF. We walked across the scale where trucks get weighed when they come in with the recycling.
0: Right, that's the first stop.
2: So the trucks are weighed when they come in and they're full of
4: your recyclables. And Jeff here, say hi Jeff. Jeff. Hi Jeff. Jeff. So Jeff can see what we weigh right here. Oh that's
2: Jeff in the speaker.
4: Don't worry, yeah he's, he's in the speaker.
2: Uh, and then we went up to a big viewing platform. We saw this huge sort of warehouse space where the trucks dump all the material out. It's called the tip floor.
4: So, this is where all the material comes. It's dumped on the floor, pushed up
2: against the wall. And then it goes through an area where there are people who pull out the first round of contamination, right? So, stuff that can't be recycled.
0: It's a big, big building with conveyor belts and hoppers and Contraptions that sort the material. How many people work here?
4: About 35. And most of them are sorters.
2: Yeah, so paper gets sorted out, uh, and then...
4: Now we're going to walk by the sorters that are uh, pulling off different kinds of containers.
2: Michelle walked us through this really tight space where there are maybe a half a dozen guys standing in front of a conveyor belt sorting the containers and pulling stuff out that isn't supposed to be in the mix.
0: It's loud, there are a lot of machines.
2: Yeah, it is really loud. The conveyor belt's moving pretty quickly. Um, The radio is on. At the end of the conveyor belt, there's this magnet that pulls up all the tin. That's how the tin gets separated out. You
4: can watch for a second, you'll see it pulling up tin cans, Ferris. Oh, Oh, cool, yeah.
2: Um, And Michelle also kept pointing out these very clearly not recyclable things that have ended up at this recycling facility. No! No, no, no! We saw a butcher knife. There was like a half-eaten corn on the cob that somebody had pitched in.
0: Yeah, she, she, she mentioned a deer carcass, though when I pushed her, she couldn't verify it, but she's, she, she made it a point that deer carcasses should not go into the recycling bin.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, PSA. <laughs> so after everything has been sorted by both humans and machines, uh, the last step is that it gets sent through a baler, which churns out these huge, giant cubes of different materials. <laughs>
0: So they end up with these big bales of paper, these big bales of plastic and cardboard. And that's what has value.
2: And this is a step where our recycling essentially transforms. This is where these materials become commodities, that they're products now that are going to be bought and sold on the open market um, and eventually get recycled into new materials. And so after the MRF, from there, where does the recycling go? Where do these commodities go?
0: That, that was one of Julie's questions, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So the recycling ends up to, we
3: would call these end sites or mills. They end up at other facilities that take that material
2: and make it into something new. The woman who can help answer that question is named Susan Millett.
3: I'm the Director of Business Development for Casella Recycling, and what that means is I work with a group of um, folks that sell all of the material that comes out of the material recovery facilities to end markets.
2: Casella is a huge private company. Uh, Susan told me they move about 800,000 tons of material a year throughout all of the states that it serves.
3: And then out of Vermont, um, it's about a little over 100,000.
2: Casella actually operates the Murph in Chittenden County and then they also own and operate the other big Murph in the state, the one in Rutland. And so they're the ones that make decisions about where the materials coming out of the two Murphs go.
0: Right. Because Susan talked to you about it, right? And it's just not so simple that that there are choices and there are markets and she's trying to get the best price for stuff.
2: Yeah. One interesting thing Susan told me is that all the material that comes out of Vermont's two MRFs is handled domestically. And in this context, that means that it stays within the U.S. or Canada. And even before China's national sword policy, we definitely weren't sending all our stuff over there. Um, Susan told me there might have been times when she sold Vermont material to China when they were the highest bidder but it wasn't like everything all the time. It's more that now that the whole global market is squeezed, that's affecting us indirectly.
3: It's affected every recycler in the United States, and it caused the market to have huge declines in material. We're at all-time lows for prices of pretty much every commodity that gets recycled.
0: Right, and that's the way I understand it too, because whatever companies Susan is selling Vermont stuff to they now have all of this other stuff from all over the country that's backed up because of the China decision.
2: Exactly. But in any case, Susan basically talked me through where a lot of these different materials end up once they leave the two MRFs in Vermont. Um, so the first thing we talked about was fiber. And there are two kinds of fiber One is cardboard. The cardboard
3: is sold to mills in New York as well as Canada. And it essentially gets made back into cardboard. New boxes. They may make the medium, which is the liner in between, the squiggly part in between um, a box.
0: That one's easy. Yep. (laughs)
2: Uh, Our mixed paper goes to actually West Virginia.
0: What do they make there?
2: So that's actually interesting because the facility in West Virginia is a paper mill that a Chinese company has purchased. So it's Chinese-operated mill that turns the mixed paper back into pulp. And they'll either make new material out of that,
3: or um, in some cases, they're actually shipping that pulp back to China.
2: Because even though China isn't taking the sort of raw, unprocessed materials anymore, they still do need the cleaner materials for their own manufacturing. Right. And so once it's processed here into like a cleaner, more pure paper pulp, they will ship it from West Virginia back to China, which I think is really interesting.
0: Right. Hard to believe.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's fibers. Uh, We talked about aluminum. Aluminum goes to
3: Alabama, and that is made into sheets or ingots and made typically into new cans of um, soda or beer cans, but also used in a variety of other products.
2: Then we talked about tin, which is separate from aluminum. Cat food cans or a soup can.
0: Right. That's what the magnets pick up.
2: Yep. Um, So that gets sold to a facility in Canada.
3: They'll melt it down and make it into new metal parts, typically for cars or any kind of electronics, a, a variety of uses.
2: And the other thing I should say here is that Susan was happy to tell me where these materials go and what happens to them. But because Casella is a privately held company, she didn't tell me the names of these companies that they sell to, uh, basically because she wants to protect Casella's proprietary interests. Um, so that's why all of this is a little vague. Sure. The last thing we talked about was plastic. It's a bit more complicated because there are so many kinds of plastic, right? You see the number one, the number two on your different containers, Um, So very quickly here. Okay, sure. Number one, plastic. It's kind of your regular water bottle. It's called PET. Polyethylene. And that goes kind of all over the place in the U.S. and Canada. Depending on what the price is and logistics. And gets turned into a lot of things.
3: Now, is that the stuff that's made into clothing and... uh...
2: Yeah, clothing, like fleece, new carpeting.
3: And um, obviously lots of new bottles made out of PET.
2: Number two plastic is HDPE. High-density polyethylene.
0: It's like milk jugs and shampoo bottles.
2: Yes, exactly. And that goes to either Alabama or Pennsylvania. Depending on whether it's a natural or a colored HDPE, it either gets turned into new piping for underneath roads for drainage or new plastic bottles.
0: And that's something we've learned is that a lot of this stuff, it's not made back into the same material that it came from.
2: Yeah, a lot of it really does transform. Um, Including stuff from this next category, which are kind of all the other kinds of plastic, numbers three through seven. And Casella groups it all together in a commodity they call tubs and lids.
0: Tubs and lids.
2: Yeah. And the thing about tubs and lids is that not everything in this category really is recyclable because there's so much packaging these days that's made with what Susan calls fillers.
3: It might be easier to ship, maybe it keeps the food fresher, but when they put um, so much filler into some of these plastics, they really can't be recycled.
2: Uh, So this stuff goes to a facility in Alabama where they first sort out the non-recyclable plastics. They do this with something called a float sink test.
0: So that's where they, how they can tell which is recyclable and which isn't?
2: Yeah, so the plastics that float are recyclable, and those get made into new paint cans, or paint tubs,
3: So if you went to Sherwin-Williams, Home Depot, Lowe's, any of those paint supplies, and you get your paint, you would notice that many of them are now made out of plastic, and that's typically um, 100% recycled.
2: And the plastics that have too much other non-recyclable material mixed into them those sink and those are just not recyclable.
3: It's a very, very small percentage.
2: Now, according to Susan, we're not talking about a ton of non-recyclable plastic here. It's less than one half
3: of 1%.
2: Which is an even smaller percentage of our recycling overall. I did ask Susan if Casella sends any of our recyclable material to a landfill. She says they don't. We do
3: not send anything to a landfill.
2: But in this case, the Alabama facility does pitch the plastics that sink. Now, we couldn't travel to all the other facilities Susan told us about to confirm that they aren't dumping or burning material. But according to Susan, most of the stuff from Vermont's two Murphs is being made into something new. Now, Howard, you might have noticed there is a material that we have not talked about yet
0: yep that's glass
2: <laughs> right that's glass <laughs> and that is because glass is not something that Susan millet of Casella sells on the open market
0: and it was something that was just very complicated we found out
2: <laughs> yeah another complicated part of a complicated story glass has been uh, a problem for a long time because it doesn't hold any value this is Kim Crosby she's an environmental compliance manager with Casella uh,
4: it's very really, no one's buying it from you. You're paying to get rid
2: of it. Now, we're not talking about glass beer bottles here that you might redeem. That's a totally separate story. But when you're talking about you know, your salsa jar, your pickle jar, when you send that stuff to the recycling facility, it does not get turned back into glass.
0: Right. That's the main point, is that it just doesn't make economic sense to make new glass out of old glass.
2: Right. Now back to these two MRFs that we have in Vermont. Casella owns and operates the MRF in Rutland. And Kim Crosby says the glass from that facility gets cleaned and broken up into something called Cullet. And we
4: transport it up to Canada to a facility called 2M that is making a
2: fiberglass product. So it goes from glass to fiberglass. Now for the MRF in Williston, Casella operates that one, too, but it's owned by the Chittenden Solid Waste District, or CSWD. And CSWD is responsible for dealing with the glass there.
4: This is what the glass looks like when it comes out of the Murph. It's already been through several stages of cleanup.
2: We're back on our tour of the Wilson Murph. Our guide, Michelle Morris, shows us the many steps glass goes through to get cleaned and crushed she says like rutland the district does sometimes send glass to 2m in canada
4: but we're paying like 25 dollars a ton to send material to 2m glass is heavy so uh, we prefer to keep it close to home and, and see if we can find local processing options
2: one local option the district has found is nearby in colchester since early last year, they've been paying $5 a ton to truck the glass to a local quarry. Jen Holliday, also of CSWD, explains. And then they use it in, in a mixture that they use for
4: road projects and, and other projects.
2: Road projects in Vermont.
4: It's mixed in at a 5% concentration into the
2: quarry stone.
0: Wow, so they're using the glass in the road, huh?
2: Yeah, at a sort of small ratio, at this 5% ratio. Now, CSWD has been in the news lately for how it used to handle glass. Long story short, there were allegations that the district was dumping crushed glass on one of its properties rather than recycling it. CSWD has maintained that they were using the glass to stabilize a bank and control erosion, which are approved uses, And so they're in the process of appealing this opinion. VPR has been reporting on this story separately. We've got some links up at our website, but we want to mention it here for two reasons. One, folks in the recycling world are very aware that you, the listener, you need to have faith in the system. You need to feel confident that when you take the time to recycle this or that, bottle or can, it's going to have a happy next life. And so any suggestion that this isn't happening, whether it's a local story or like a global market story, that can rattle your faith. So here's Josh Kelly from the state.
6: I think we need to restore confidence in the recycling system. And it's hard to do that when people hear that recycling markets are really um, troubled. And they are. But that doesn't mean that there is not manufacturers and industry that are depending on these materials.
2: The second reason we want to mention this is that this one controversy about glass from one Vermont facility underscores just how hard it is to deal with recyclable materials when there's no good market for them. Even the quarry where CSWD now sends its crushed glass, it's called FW Whitcomb Construction, this quarry says it's only using some of that material in its road projects. The rest of it just gets piled up at the quarry.
5: It's piling up because we necessarily didn't have the market structure here in the United States.
2: That is Natalie Starr, the economist we met earlier. And here's the thing. Natalie says it's cheaper right now to make new glass and new plastic than it is to recycle. So if we want to keep all this stuff out of the landfill, we're going to have to come up with new ways to reuse the materials.
5: That's going to take a long time road and a real change in policy and a lot of investment to create that kind of infrastructure for our commodities
2: so all of this made howard and me wonder what if there were a different way and it turns out an entrepreneur named rob conboy thinks there is
6: glass really was meant to stay here you don't want to ship heavy glass to then be recycled elsewhere Um, and we
0: believe we have the solution so rob conboy is a business guy and he's worked at some pretty well-known companies through the years.
6: I relocated here about 20 years ago to work for Burton Snowboards and went from Burton to 7th generation, uh, got the first green MBA from UVM, um, and I've been doing
0: renewable startups about ever since. And while he was doing that sustainability work, Rob heard about this product that was made out of recycled glass. It was a rigid foam board used for insulation. They've been making it in Europe for about 20 years. And he was excited because the options for insulation, even if you're putting up a so-called green building, are conventionally made out of petroleum and a bunch of nasty chemicals. But this new stuff is just recycled glass. It's flame-retardant, no chemicals, and it's just about the same price as the petroleum-based insulation. And so now Rob has started a company, and he wants to make this foam glass insulation right here in Vermont. He calls it glavel. It
6: does start with glass from Chittenden County.
0: So I go to visit him in Burlington, and on his desk he's got these jars of crushed glass. And they look just like the processed glass that we saw at the Murph in Williston. He tells me how he'd turn it into foam glass insulation. Taking the glass, grinding it into a fine powder, you run that fine powder through a kiln. Which... Rob says he's got most of his financing in place and he's got a location picked out in St. Albans. He says he could be up and running next year using most of the recycled glass from the Williston Murph to make this foam board.
2: Now, Rob Conboy isn't the only one in the business of local recycling. In fact, there are a couple of facilities in Vermont that are already processing recyclables. And our economist, Natalie Starr, says we're going to need innovation and investment in order to recycle even more here at home.
5: It could be good in the long run, but it's not going to be without a lot of hiccups and uh, a lot of pain and some costs now as we develop domestic markets.
0: All of which is to say that the answer to the second part of Julie's question about where Vermont's recycling ends up, it's kind of a moving target right now.
2: And Susan Millett of Casella thinks that's a good thing.
3: There are definitely lots of folks out there that have some fantastic ideas and they will stick. A few years from now, it's just gonna look different. We'll still be recycling, it's just gonna look different. And I I find that exciting.
2: Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. Howard Weiss-Tisman reported this episode with me. We've got cool videos of the Chittenden Murph and three things that you can do to improve the recycling situation up at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. If you want to support the show, you can pitch in at bravelittlestate.org slash donate or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. We have digital support from Elodie Reed and engineering support from Chris Albertine. Special thanks to Paul Tomasi, Shannon Choquette, Josh Kelly, Bob Kinzel, John Dillon, and Nora Canitas boydell I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month with a question about child care in Vermont. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.